This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. We're going to discuss how we can achieve full decarbonisation across the built environment, how we can join up our efforts to achieve this. Along the way, we'll talk about the role of innovation in achieving some of those outcomes. I'm going to start very gently just to get them kind of warmed up. It's some really kind of simple questions. And I'm going to ask Rob what you think the main challenges are for the housing sector in achieving net zero. Yes. Yeah, so those of you who don't know Clarion Housing Group, we're, the, we're a charitable organisation. We're the largest registered social landlord in the country. And we've been taking part in the uh, social housing decarbonisation fund through, through the government. We've been taking part in all three waves and we're the largest bidder in the wave 2.1, which is the latest wave, retrofitting around 6,000 homes over the next two and a half years. So in terms of the, the, the challenges, as I see it, there's many challenges, but I'll stick with three. I think the first one is that every time we come to do a new retrofit, we start the conversation from scratch with the residents. And that is because I think although net zero carbon is talked about a lot, when we talk about on, on a world stage and, and reaching net zero carbon targets and when we'll stop using coal and things like that. But we haven't yet captured the imagination of the average home occupant in this country and what their role is in reducing the 14% of carbon emissions from our housing stock and how they do that over the next 20 years. Um, and that's, that's really then you know, people are quite reluctant when you go to retrofit their home, even though they might save on their energy bills, to actually go through this disruption of a significant retrofit project. The second is obviously financial. Um, it's not really a lack of money or lack of capital. It's more the kind of equation of the business case because the cost of some of the hardest to heat homes, the retrofits on those homes, is extensive. And even when you're talking about sort of private homeowners, there's going to need to be some government financial assistance for those hardest to heat homes when it comes to achieving the levels of energy efficiency they need. So that's, that's a big challenge. And also with landlords, the benefits of retrofit go to the residents in terms of savings on energy bills. The third and the one that we, that we talk about the most is really the supply chain and how you gear up, scale up the supply chain. And it's not just the manufacturers and the components that you need and, and, and the labor, it's actually, I think, again, when you come to private homeowners, how are you going to project manage all of these retrofits? How are you going to actually coordinate? You know, anyone that's had building work done to their own home knows how much of a hassle it is working with supply chains, working with builders. Actually, this is going to have to happen for millions of people up and down the country. How are we going to coordinate all of that? 
Um, so those are the three. There are many more, but I'll just stick with those three as food for thought right now. So, so Rob, I know that um, you talked about social housing, but I also saw that you look after different forms of, of uh, housing, so rental, for example. Do you think those three challenges apply across all of the different sectors? A absolutely, they do, yeah, they, they really do. I mean, for, as I mentioned, for private homeowners, the challenges of funding um, are particularly on the harder to heat. You know, you have got homes that are already at very good levels of energy efficiency, so there is a business case there, but still requires uh, economies of scale in a greater supply chain to convert uh, for those high energy efficiency homes to electric or green forms of heating, which is you know really getting rid of fossil fuels and boilers. But actually, for those ones at the bottom end where they were they're built you know in a form of construction, which means you know if you've got concrete, wimpy, no finds buildings and you own no, that home you're going to have to retrofit it significantly and there's going to be a big cost to that. So the private homeowner is going to need some support financially. There isn't really a business case for them to do that. They don't get the value back from the work. So, uh, so that's going to be a uh, thing. And then with, 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 the, with the PRS sector, uh, you know, the, the build to rent sector, that, you know, that is going to need some thought as well. They own the same sort of types of homes up and down the country. You know, we have the oldest and the least energy efficient housing stock in Europe. It's going to take some real big effort and thought to get it all up to the levels of energy efficiency that we need. So I was interested, though, you said that it's not finance. The availability of finance isn't necessarily the issue. It's creating a kind of business case. And we'll come on to that in a minute. I might ask Joe to comment on that. But Gaurav, I'm interested in the kind of resident conversation from scratch. And I wonder whether this is a kind of a mindset issue or, or is it a mindset in the supply chain or in the providers or is it a mindset issue in, in the people that Rob is, you know, having those conversations with at the outset? I, I, sometimes it's a stage of life people are at. They don't want to have that level of disruption. So they're, yeah. they're quite happy. Their, their energy mills might have gone up recently, but, you know, if it's not really harming them that much, why do they want to have their, their sort of, world turned upside down by a retrofit of their home and it's 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 that really it's that it's that disruption the hassle factor that some people just don't want to go through at this point it's uh it's it's stressful having building work done to your house well there was there was a lot of evidence wasn't there in uh, one of the previous schemes where people were just totally reluctant to clear out their loft to get all the advantages and i i might say i fall into that category no one wants to go in my loft so, what do you think about the mindset issue? You, you know, Nicola, I think, I think there's a couple of different pieces to it. So, I think it's a bit of a chicken and an egg issue. So, if you think about how we've approached building decarbonization, we focus really extensively on operational carbon, much less so on embodied carbon. And I think the challenge is that, you know, while electrical grids decarbonize, operational energy demands essentially get decarbonized really quickly. On the other hand, when we look at the supply chain around building materials, it's really nascent in terms of what we can do. And so there's the simple things that we can do, which are really around materials use efficiencies and making using materials more effectively. But if we look at the entire supply chain and value chain around construction materials, really based on concrete and steel, as an example, there's a long way to go before we decarbonize these supply chains. This is a big issue because we don't have manufacturing capacity to produce low carbon materials at scale. Until you produce materials at scale, costs don't come down. As long as costs don't come down, adoption is difficult. And so you've got to sort of solve this problem very systematically, but also very strategically, where you go out and create manufacturing capacity. As you create manufacturing capacity, 
you create options in the marketplace because construction, although it's a really large industry, it's actually hostage to itself. If you don't create supply, you will not have demand. And so you need to incent demand. That's what creates supply. And so you've got to sort of go through this iterative loop over and over again. And it's only then that you emerge by disrupting a material supply base that's 150 years in the making. And, and I think that's something that we've really got to focus on. Of how do you create demand? How do you create scalable supply? But most importantly, how do you use technology as a lever to bring down costs with increasing scale? So I, I saw in your profile that you've been involved in the creation of lots of you know, technology and uh, ways of kind of trying to tackle the very problem that you're describing. So kind of before we move on, perhaps you could say a little bit about how you think you solved the problem. Sure. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a third generation civil engineer. Um, and one of the things that I've realized over the years is cost is everything. And so when we've thought about innovation, we really thought about innovation from the perspective of how do you create technology that allows functional equivalence, enormous reductions in carbon footprint, but cost parity. And so I think, I think an important premise around how we've thought of our work is how do you use technology to avoid a green premium? The idea of a green premium simply does not sit well, right? Because what it means is that you need to absorb a higher cost in the midst of doing good. You know, when resources are a plenty, this is okay. When resources are limited, very hard to do. And so as we've thought about this, we've really sort of thought about all of the different touch points in the material supply chain. And, you know, I trained to be a cement chemist for whatever it's worth. And, and really, if you sort of look at the embodied carbon intensity around construction, cement is sort of the elephant in the room. When you think about cement decarbonization, you need to go all the way back up to the cement plant, right? You can sort of play around at the edges with trying to substitute cement with other things. You can play around with trying to do improvements in, in how you use materials. But fundamentally, you've got to go all the way up the cement supply chain and think about decarbonizing at the cement plant level. Any value you create there by decarbonization all flows downstream. And so you, we've got to sort of thought, think about our leverage points. And our leverage points, really, frankly, there's only about two. Um, We've so gone about to create a series of technologies that look at cement, that look at concrete production, and then look at concrete utilization, and try to create solutions at each one of these touch points so that you unify the value chain. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing to bring about because any value that you create upstream all flows downstream. Right. So, Chris, I want to come on to you now, really, because I heard you talking about this in the kind of the green room, the difference between sort of embodied carbon and, you know, the creation of new homes. And I, I wondered whether or not you've got a perspective on what Gaurav is saying there, really, and about some of the challenges of the two different things that are going on at the moment in, the, in that supply chain in the marketplace. I think the first thing is about building some capacity for people to understand that there are a bunch of different issues. And, you know, even to notice the difference between operational and embodied carbon. I mean, historically, people have been aware of operational carbon. They've been aware of energy efficiency, all of the big drives from government level um, on down have been about energy efficiency. Um, even speaking to senior officials in the European Union a few years ago, they were still very much on the operational energy agenda. And when we started to talk about embodied carbon with them, they were kind of looking back quite blank at if, if I'm if I'm honest, um, and and I think as as has already been said, because the the grids of the world are decarbonizing quite quickly now, um, and the operational energy uh, issues are starting to fall away in comparison over the um, whole life of a building with the in, embodied carbon issues, um, and as a, as has already been said, that's a that's a more difficult nut to crack. Uh, Firstly, because it isn't all about the kind of the 
taking fossil fuels out of their production. It's about the chemical processes that are involved in their production. So these very high temperature projects like uh, steel and concrete and glass, you know, there, there is the release of carbon directly in chemical form. And, and, and that means a lot of um, additional research has got to go into the uh, construction of the materials. But I think, in a way, the whole conversation starts before that. The conversation starts by what do you do to avoid the use of materials in the first place? Um, uh, which takes you into valuing existing buildings. Um, it takes you into not knocking down existing buildings because you've then got to replace them with something which has got a lot of carbon in. And even if the operational performance of those new buildings is superlative, every time we've looked at it, we've never managed over the life cycle of a building to say you catch up because you put so much embodied carbon back into the new build. So I, I think a lot of it is understanding these issues. And I think a lot of it is about efficiency. Um, you know, the question of investment and the question of money. I mean, when you think about operational energy, you almost always think about, I'm paying more for some form of device which is more efficient and over a period of time is going to recover the cost. But embodied energy is different. In embodied energy is if you can drive that down in the first place, you can drive first cost down. And that's actually quite an aha moment for people when they first get that understanding. Because often it's about making decisions, in our case design decisions, about being more efficient with the materials, using less materials. Simple things like um, reducing spans of structure, reducing spans or size of pieces of glass, um, issues of that na nature, not, not making buildings taller and more slender than they need to be, all of which in their day were considered to be fantastic architecture and fantastic uh, feats of engineering. And now people just need to calm down on that agenda and actually do it in the simplest way possible. Okay, really interesting. So don't just do it because you can. Think about the environment. Can I, can I loop all the way back to uh, the challenges that Rob set out, that he articulated uh, at the beginning, Joe, and, and come to you and come back to this kind of financing issue and financing retrofit? You know, you know is, it, is it about a lack of capital? Or as uh, I think Rob was suggesting, it's about who gets the benefit in retrofit. So is there something from your work with Deloitte that you might have a view about, people think, thinking about when they're thinking about finance and retrofit? Yeah, so absolutely. So in Deloitte, I think everybody just thinks of us um, in terms of only doing finance. But within my team, I, I sit within um, a team of um, asset management, real estate professionals, over 200 of us. Um, and there's also another team of um, nearly 200 sustainability professionals as well. So I think what we've got there is that sort of combination of, of, of seeing sustainability through a financial lens, which really helps sort of open up that what does the board see when they're choosing to make an investment or not make an investment? One thing that, I, that really strikes me is this, the, the conversation quite often is coming round to, uh, oh, it's a new thing, or we haven't thought about it, it's not in the business plan. But I, actually, this was, it was first sort of raised by a, a Swedish scientist in the 1800s that um, fossil fuels were going to cause climate change. So if it's not in the business plan, yeah, people are not thinking, were they? Um, Quite apart from that, though, there's a huge amount around risk. Um, and that is really where, where we need to be going with, with the conversation. Um, 
Gaurav mentioned about green premium, and I think we would take issue with it from what we're finding. We would take issue with the concept of a green premium these days. It's becoming far more that sustainable buildings will be the norm, and anything that is not sustainable will be losing value and losing value rapidly. And you know, we, we talk about the concept of, of stranded assets, which I think we'll come to in a minute, but there is a, a huge risk to buildings and to capital and to the way that we live our lives within the buildings that we occupy if we don't take action now. And so in terms of the business case and the financing of it, there's, there's an imperative about risk avoidance and cost avoidance, um, not just about how do we make it pay back from the energy efficiencies that we're getting or from the renewable energy export or energy avoidance costs and all of that side of things, but also really quite heavily from that risk avoidance side. Can I, can I just stick with you for a minute? Because my background long time ago now is in the built environment and, and housing, but you know, there's a lot of terms that are bandied about. And one of the terms that might get us into some other conversations is stranded assets. And I've heard this a lot lately. And I wonder if you could just demystify uh, what a stranded, a stranded asset is and what it isn't, just for those in the audience that might not know. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so a great example of this is the um, minimum energy efficiency standards that came in in April. Um, so from April onwards, it's become illegal to let a building um, that is uh, energy efficiency standard less than EPCC, commercial property. Uh, EPCE, sorry, for commercial property. So on, on that basis, the policy is also moving forward to, they haven't committed deadlines, it's not committed in law, but to EPCC, EPCB over time as well. So there's this huge risk. Right now, we've already got property that is unable to be let because it's, we're past the EPCE barrier. In the future, by the time we get to 2030, if policy spans out as people have said it, it's likely to, um, we could have up to 80% of the office space in London unlettable um, for that reason. Um, so the term stranded assets is property that is unlettable, unsaleable, unless you undertake retrofit to bring it back up to those minimum standards. And, and I guess that's why we were talking earlier about the sort of brown discount rather than the green premium, because you know, you know it, it, that is a minimum standard, um, and that's what, therefore what we need to be working towards, rather than looking at uh, you know it, it's a, it's just a premium. It's something better than normal. Um, it's not. There are other reasons behind the stranded asset concept as well. So there's a whole sort of expectation now from a lot of tenants, um, whether they be commercial or or domestic, um, about minimum energy standards that they everybody's aware of the cost of energy you you want minimum energy efficiency and you also want a comfortable environment and that's a sort of minimum expectation from residents as well and then of course you've got the whole climate change issue of are things actually no longer suitable in the way they were suitable a lot of property no longer um, usable because of risk of flooding or no longer insurable perhaps so there are whole tiers of reasons why an asset might become stranded over time all of which obviously adds to your business case and your imperative to take action as soon as possible.
Yeah, and I think that's, that's really the, the key thing, isn't it, really? What, what is that kind of bigger plan that stitches all those things together, whether or not it is expectation from the consumer um, or it's you know, kind of managing the risk from your, if you're a, a, a large landlord like Robbie's with Clarion, um, and, and how do you manage all of that? And I, I wonder, Chris, whether or not that's something you might comment on in terms of uh, kind of the broader planning and, and kind of like how we're designing, if you like, to make use of both the kind of regulatory, the kind of changing people's kind of mindsets and expectations and, and how we're kind of changing the way we design for the future on a city scale. So anything that kind of strikes you from what Joe said that, that might be able to comment on? Yeah, well, I think, um, I think I have a number of points on that. I mean, from a stranded asset point of view, I think, and you can, uh, in London, these certainly exist, and I think they, they exist in quite a, uh, a number of large cities. You know, you can actually see GIS, geographic information uh, system type maps of all of the real estate, and you can see color-coded each plot and you can tell whether it's an A, B, C, D, E, F, G, what level of energy efficiency it's at. Um, and that's because um, many of them in one way or another are now covered by legislation uh, or have had to be traded and other such things. And, and also, you can actually interpolate as well. If you know approximately how old a particular building is um, and the nature of its construction, that gives you a pretty high level indication of kind of within the set of data what its performance is likely is, is likely to be so I think so that's one thing so you do know where they are what what I do think is is necessary and this is uh, linking back in a way to the uh, a number of the, uh, the comments that our colleagues have, have, have said what you need to do is to make an opportunity for people to intervene somehow on mass to drive the cost down um, you know done done piecemeal one at a time buildings are relatively expensive to retrofit. Um, they're relatively um, uh, inconvenient to, retrospect, uh, to, to retrofit. And I think there is an opportunity for those who own a lot of real estate or can control a lot of real estate assets some way, maybe boroughs and other such things, to bring forward opportunities where multiple uh, assets can be um, intervened with at any one time. So, so, so if the industry in the supply chain has the opportunity to maybe deal with 200 buildings in a small, a relatively small area, the unit cost of dealing with that is going to tumble in comparison to doing 200 of them one by one, and it'll happen much more quickly. So I think there is an opportunity here uh, to be captured where large-scale interventions can take, point, uh, can take place. So that's the kind of, at one level, that's um, a, a means of dealing with it. But but if I may, one of the other things that we've learned about decarbonisation is um, uh, there's a lot of hidden carbon that, 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 that you have to find when you think about it. So we've heard about materials, we've heard about buildings. One of the things that we've done, and, and, and we've looked at, um, in Foster and Partners, we've looked at several hundred buildings ourselves now over the last eight or, eight or nine years since we've had a, a, an approach to doing this. We've learned that sometimes, quite counterintuitively, Carbon can be a valid investment in a building as well as a cost. And the example that I would offer is transport-orientated uh, development. So where we've looked at uh, very similar buildings that may be on the edge of a metropolis that people drive to in cars 
and compared them with buildings that are at a transport-orientated interchange, interchange where people can walk to them from the underground, what you find is, yes, the building itself has more carbon because it's in a complicated site. But if you take a holistic whole life view, you can quite easily double or triple the amount of carbon by driving cars to it. So actually, sometimes carbon is a valid investment if it can be linked to transport. And I think we need to be able to see in the way that we regulate and legislate and, and bring forward guidance. I think we, ne we ne need to be able to make those choices together so as we actually drive towards something which genuinely decarbonizes the, the economy rather than accidentally does the opposite. When you think it's when you think you know a small building or a short building is better than a tall building, yes, depending on the context is 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 the answer. And I think that the whole thing has to be seen together. Yeah, go please. Yeah, so um, absolutely, Chris, totally agree. One one of the problems um, I think that, that that leads to some of the issues that Chris was talking about there is the fact that we quite often separate out the person who's building the building from the person who's operating it. So, so you see analysis sometimes saying that actually the costs of operating and, and owning and maintaining a building across a 30-year lifespan is actually pretty near equivalent to the cost of building the thing in the first place. You really, until you've got that whole life view, you, you really, you're probably investing in the wrong things um, at the outset. And, and it's really important that that sort of lens that Chris is bringing to it is really critical for us um, in, as a sector in the whole, in, in how we decide to make our investment. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the built environment isn't is it an island, is it? It's an ecosystem. Uh, and, uh, you know, cities are those ecosystems. So urbanisation and, and all of the stats around urbanisation, you know, is coming. We need to see it um, in its totality rather than building uh, by building. Um, Rob, is there something more you might say about, um, you know, being, I mean, Chris's first point about, you know, not doing one building at a time. You know, I mean, obviously you've got a lot of buildings, a lot of uh, homes. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how you're innovating with the yeah, buildings yeah. you've got to kind of do this more at scale yeah, rather than kind of small pockets of um, retrofit. And, and that's really what the learning in the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund has been. So we started off in a demonstrator wave with around 100 properties across two local authorities that we did a whole house retrofit on. Um, and in that first demonstrator wave, the retrofit process was taking about 100 days per property on average. Um, the last wave, wave one we did, we got that down to 35 days and you start to get, so I mean, I, I'm a great believer that if you set a challenge, um, humans are great problem solvers uh, and we're great at collaborating, but if you set a clear aligned challenge that everyone's got to drive towards, we'll all come together around it. And I think that's the thing that we need to find within it. In terms of doing it at scale, I think it's difficult at the moment, but I mean, I've got an example in our you know, retrofits that we've done, the funding is just for social housing, but a lot of the homes across our portfolio have been sold off through right to buy over the years. So you end up with private homeowners sitting in between our homes and there you end up with no funding for the private homeowners to do their homes at the same time. So I think if we're gonna do it at scale, we need to kind of crack that bit around, around joining the whole thing up so that you can go 
area by area and really get the economies of scale. But certainly, you know, we've gone from 100 to 350 to 6,000 in the next, next wave. And, and we are learning each time, we're, we're innovating each time, and certainly you start to get the economies of scale, you start to build the supply chain, uh, and it starts to get that sort of ball rolling, the snowball moving in terms of, in terms of what we need to do here. So yeah, absolutely agree with that. Okay, that, that's really interesting. And there's a kind of real sense of, do we think this is actually achievable across the built environment? You know, do, do we actually think it's possible? Do we live in a, oh, do we think the panels are glass half full or a glass half empty panel on uh, on that question of, you know, are we even going to crack it? I mean, Gaurav, you're, you're into technology and material science and, you know, the future of, of, of the way in which we approach this. What What's your view about, is the solution just around the corner? Is it about large scale and tackling residents or is it in, in, in technology, do you think? So, uh, great, great question. I'll try and answer this in two ways. So, technologically, is this possible? 100%. But there are two issues that you actually need to fix, right? So, the first thing is, I think the reality is construction is innovation averse. And it's really an industry in which everyone wants to be the first person to be second, which is part of the problem. And then something that Chris touched on, but also Joe touched on, you have a major issue with split incentives. Until the person who builds is either regulated or mandated to reduce embodied carbon intensity, it's hard for them to voluntarily do it because the benefits are reaped by someone else. And so you have to sort of minimize these split incentives where there's fragmentation. If you had building codes that are standardized and standardized methods of measurement around embodied carbon particularly, you know, I think, I think operational carbon is much easier because there's actually a financial reason to do it very often. Embodied carbon, you basically need a mandate that you have to reduce your carbon footprint systematically. There's, there's examples of this. So for example, California recently turned into law a standard that requires cement production to be carbon neutral by 2045. So there's a downslope where essentially the cement industry needs to reduce the embodied carbon intensity of cement production by 40% by 2035, and then it needs to go to zero by 2045. This is really important, and I think this is the kind of measures that you need because they go all the way upstream. The, the challenge is if you do this only at the level of a building code, if there isn't a material supply base that you build around this, you can't actually implement and fulfill the code, and then you end up getting allowances until the material supply base builds up. If you go all the way up the supply chain and say, you know, we're going to do this systematically, where you start at the top of the supply chain, and you come down to the bottom where you actually have enforcement happen simultaneously, you can make all of this happen. And then technology plays the role of sort of going back to the first case. Can you do this? The answer is yes. And then systematic deployation, deployment brings down cost. And so that's how you go about it. And, and presumably what you're talking about are global standards as opposed to country standards? Or do you think it should just be done? So it's a, you know? it's a, it's a great point, right? So one of the big issues, I think, it, with building codes in general is they are highly disharmonized and they are very local. So you need both national level standards and then you need local standards. But if you think about how you can approach this, you know, in effect, construction in a given region is enforced by a single entity. For example, it's some, some office in the city of London, which I don't know. But I know, for example, in Los Angeles, it would be the buildings department. And so once you set this about, the moment you send in a plan which says, I want to go build this building or I want to do this kind of retrofit, it immediately lays out what are the criteria that you need to meet from a life safety perspective and in California, we care about earthquakes, so about earthquake safety, but also about embodied carbon footprint. And then you go after those simultaneously and together, where until you fulfill those standards, you don't get a building permit. And, and that's a really effective way of doing it. And, and 
you know, I, I don't want to say that the reality is all based on sort of the stick, but the stick is just as important as the carrot. I can see you nodding, Joe. You, you clearly agree with Gaurav? Yeah, to I, <laughs> I, I, I love that whole concept. Uh, the, um, part Z of the building regs, I, I think, was the, <laughs> is the campaign over here to, to bring in that embodied carbon regulation. And that's absolutely... That would transform things, definitely. Another thing, though, that's really interesting, I find really interesting, is that one of the biggest drivers of improvement in carbon in construction at the moment is um, coming from the finance sector. And I never would have expected that. But, but a lot of it, is, I mean, it partly comes back to what I said earlier about risk. It's partly about... Um, people seeing the risk to their investments and, and wanting to make sure that things are refurbed so that risk is removed. But the other great thing is they've set themselves targets, which means that they now only want to really invest or they want to invest more into green stuff, which means that finance is now available um, at a cheaper rate, marginally cheaper, sure, but at a cheaper rate if you're investing it into green and sustainable projects. And that's absolutely brilliant because it is actually changing a slant in people's thinking about how they use their capital um, and, and how they fund their projects and also which projects they, they buy into. Um, and I've had some great, I had a great conversation earlier with the Green Finance Institute because we were talking about, they've been doing a lot of work on the, um, the homeowners, the private domestic sector, and we were talking about how actually the models ought to be brought together and looked at as a whole, which was all part of what, what Rob was saying about scale. So you're, so you're retrofitting on a community scale. So all of this, you know, your, your original question where you started with, are we glass half full or glass half empty? I mean, I see the challenges and they're absolutely huge, but there's all sorts of pockets of real optimism here. And to, and to think that it's, you know, largely driven by the finance sector at the moment, I love that. Because you would have thought that's a real traditional kind of, they wouldn't be at the front of something as forward thinking as this. And, and there they are. There they are. I can see you nodding away, um, Rob, but I'm going to ask you slightly, it's related to what uh, both Gaurav and, and um, Joe are just saying, but, you know, linking it to the way in which we're incentivizing in the UK, so the, the recent social decarbonisation fund, I mean, do you think that the criteria for the success of you know, getting funding through that route bears any relation to what Gaurav and, and Joe are just saying? Yes. What's been your experience? Is yes. that driving genuine Def change? Definitely is. I think it's difficult at the moment with the economics of the UK and the fact that uh, you know, everyone's quite constrained by inflationary pressures and interest rate rises, which has kind of constrained, I think, the uptake in that program, although it was a, you know, they got all the money away. The 800 million did get spent uh, and did get gifted out as put in grants. So that was good to see. But um, no, there's definitely uh, the ambition there. I think what is, what is different in our residential sector is our um, sort of energy efficiency targets are soft. So they're soft for 2030 and soft for 2035. And I think you know, that's possibly why it hasn't really captured the imagination of homeowners up and down, down the country and why they haven't really sort of really fully invested in it yet. It doesn't really seem to affect their, affect their investments. If you look at, you know, we're coming back to stranded assets. If you look at primarily valued by location, location is the biggest driver of value still in the UK. So if you look at 
assets that are listed in conservation areas. They're still highly valued prized assets, but they're going to be very difficult to retrofit in the future. Um, if lenders suddenly change their criteria around mortgage availability for those types of homes in the future, it will affect the value. But that hasn't kind of come to fruition because there isn't any kind of hard target out around that, that sort of area at this point in time. I don't think the government quite want to go there yet, but at some point they are going to have to go there and I think it will make a difference. In terms of our funding, we're funded mainly through bonds, long-term bonds, um, and our funding is very much now um, uh, impact investors, ESG. Um, housing associations have a very strong social purpose. Our mission is to provide homes for the, the, those that need them most, and therefore that chimes very strongly with investors. We're now adding into that, actually, with our strong governance, the strong environmental side to sustainability, and that makes us a really good investment for impact investment. Um, and it means that we are, you know, able to access capital and, and, and move it forward from that point of view. But um, that market is changing. I don't think the private mortgage market has changed enough yet. And it, I don't know when that will change, but I think it might happen over the next decade. Yeah, it, it's back to your point earlier, Joe. That's a risky transition, isn't it, really? You know, changing something as fundamental as what's what, what creates value? I, I, I saw you um, nodding, Chris. I, I can't quite see whether you're nodding in agreement or you're kind of you're looking to say something to build on Rob's point. Well, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I think when I, from our, the perspective of what we see, most of our work is, is essentially one way or another, either for the private sector or, or, or maybe funded by sovereign money or something. It's, it, it's, it's, so it's, it's in a different kind of, the money comes from a different place and it has a different source. But we definitely have um, uh, we have projects which have been uh, funded by our clients through green bonds, and that has been the case going back to well for probably now eleven or twelve years, um, and we're, you know some of them are in their second or third bond issue. So so that has been happening. The other thing that we've actually started to see now is uh, our clients being interested in sustainability linked loans. Um, and I think they're interested in it for two reasons. As Joe said, they're a bit cheaper, but they really are only marginally cheaper. It's not really, people are not seeking sustainability-linked loans, I think primarily because they want cheaper money. Why I think they're seeking it is because it gives their investment probity. What it means is they're not talking greenwash. They're going to be held to account by the, the whoever has given them the loan. There are going to be measurement criteria, there are going to be KPIs that they're going to have to develop, that they're going to have to show at different points in their financial cycle. So as they can go to uh, uh, their investors, maybe they can go to equity investors or something, and they can say, look, you know, here's my debt, it's got a sustainability-linked loan, and that gives people um, a, an understanding of the nature of the investment that they're involved in. It gives an understanding of the worthiness and it means that people can't talk, you know, it's greenwash has gone out of the window. So I think that's really a kind of quite important element um, is, 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 is to see. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. Uh, each one of you, the opportunity to identify the single biggest barrier to decarbonising the built environment. So, start with you, Joe. I'm going to pick on something that I think Rob touched on earlier, which... Right now, so I've, I've only recently come out of delivering um, retrofit myself, um, and I would say the biggest challenge that I found was actually in physically delivering it 
was the supply chain. Um, just at the moment, we've really not got the strength in the supply chain in order to be able to actually physically deliver. And that, that, that's, I think, part of the idea behind um, the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund and other funds of that ilk was to try to stimulate the supply chain. But actually what it does is it means that everybody goes out to procure all at the same time, boom, which, if anything, just means that those few companies that exist out there able to do the work um, are completely swamped and prices go up. What do you think is the biggest challenge? So I'll, I'll flip this and, and answer this as follows. About 60 to 70% of all purchasing of things like cement and steel is done by governments, national, federal, state, municipal. In the US, there's a big move towards buy clean standards where you essentially need to buy materials not only based on cost, but also carbon intensity as a, as a basis of, of procurement. I think this is actually the biggest lever that we have. Getting governments to emplace standards that really focus on embodied carbon reductions is the quickest way that you can actually get the industry at large to move, not simply the private sector acting on its own. Okay, so procurement, the solution. So what do you think, Rob? Do you want to, you want to go for a solution or a, or a challenge? I'll go for a challenge. It's the one I mentioned first, which is we've really got to capture the public's imagination. We've really got to translate the complexity of what we're talking about and simplify it into what every single person in this country can start doing and needs to do over the next 20 years. And I think that's a conversation that needs to start now, really. It's, and it's, it's too much a conversation with the experts at this point in time. Actually, outside of this room, the average homeowner in this country is, 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 is oblivious to this. And actually, we need, to, we need to start educating and getting people to understand what's going to happen and what they need to do. And so for me, that is the greatest challenge we've got as a nation for the next the next few years. Brilliant, thank you. Okay, Chris, so you've got 45 seconds. Come on, bring us banging on time. Yeah, thank you. I come from the point of view that I think uh, governments set the rules by which everybody plays. So I think we need really solid, well thought out government policy, which looks at the whole life cycle of the assets um, and speaks to those. And, and, and if that is good legislation, then I think you'll get innovation from all of those involved, the private sector um, or homeowners uh, within that legislation. But I think the legislative framework needs to be innovative. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.